Good times. TheCooperageProject.org. And from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. It's all things considered here on Radio Catskill. I'm Jason Dolan. We're pausing now, taking some time to go over some of the news from Albany. Yesterday was January 1st, New Year's Day, and New York inaugurated the first ever woman to be elected governor in New York State, Governor Kathy Hochul. As Karen DeWitt reports, she pledged to take on battles over the next four years, and they include fighting against gun violence, anti-Semitism, and other bigotry, and recent decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court. I, Kathy Hochul, do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. Hochul took the oath administered by longtime NAACP President Hazel Dukes using two Bibles. One was her family Bible. The other was the Roosevelt family Bible, borrowed from the FDR presidential library, first published in the 1600s and written in Dutch. The program included videos from young women noting the significance of the day, a gospel choir. An eight-year-old Harlem resident, Caden Hearn, named the Poet Laureate of the 2023 inaugural ceremonies, reciting his poem, In My Mind. I thought it was fine to sit in the back of the classroom because my teacher never asked me to read or write. But little did she know... I was ever so bright. Hochul, who first took office in August of 2021 when former Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned in a sexual harassment scandal, name-checked historical women figures in New York who influenced her, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, the late Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, and Hillary Clinton. But she noted she's not only beginning her term to make history, but she says to make a difference. Hochul says she'll prioritize resolving the affordable housing crisis and the scourge of gun violence that took the lives of 10 people in a mass shooting in her hometown of Buffalo last spring. The loss of lives goes on and on. The rise in hate crimes. What happened here? Especially anti-Semitism, Asian hate, anti-LGBTQ hate. And the systemic racism that still persists to this day, those are the fights we are called to take on. We must. Hochul also gave a shout-out to police and other emergency response professionals in Buffalo where a devastating Christmas blizzard killed 39. Hochul, who last November won election by the smallest margin in a generation, faced criticism from her opponent over the state's high crime rate. She vowed to make the state safer, and she also pledged to continue to protect the right to choose abortion, marriage, and voting, and improve a flagging economy. And we must reverse the trend of people leaving our state in search of lower costs and opportunities elsewhere. We can do this. The state's lieutenant governor, Antonio Delgado, the state attorney general, Tish James, and controller Tom DiNapoli were also sworn in to new four-year terms. After the ceremony, Hochul has a busy month scheduled with the State of the State address on January 10th and her state budget plan due by February. But it's not going to be all smooth sailing for the governor. In between those addresses, her choice for New York's new chief judge, Hector LaSalle, faces a tough confirmation process from the New York State Senate, where a dozen Democratic senators have pledged not to vote for the governor's choice. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. And thanks, as always, to Karen DeWitt for that report. Before the weekend, before the holiday weekend, before the inauguration, Karen DeWitt spoke with Ian Pickus at WNYC about what lies ahead for the legislative session that starts uh, this month and goes for the next uh, six months here in New York State. Let's hear some of that conversation now. She has that laid out really much of an agenda 
So I'm looking forward to the state of the state to see exactly what she has. I'm sure, Ian, you remember the Cuomo years where he would have about, you know, dozens of proposals, I'd say a hundred, but it was practically that. And every day for 10 days leading up to the state of the state, he'd try to make a big deal out of each of them. And it was all very planned out. Certainly, um, we, she doesn't have that style for both good and bad. Um, we do know that she really wants to work on affordable housing because there's an affordability crisis. She talked, she's talking about doing a $25 billion 10 year plan. Um, but to do that, they need to revive an expired tax break for developers. It's known as 421A because without it, a lot of the wealthy development companies don't have incentive to um, build any affordable units. Hochul's also talking about trying to break local suburban zoning laws that keep out a lot of multifamily housing. So that's going to be quite a challenge for her. And, um, you know, I think some of the other things that she's going to be dealing with that are unpredictable are storms. That's like some like like a big role for governors now. I mean, look what we saw in Buffalo, seven feet of snow in November the 36-hour blizzard over Christmas that the death toll is up, uh, you know, more than three dozen people. And, you know, the other unknowns, COVID, is it going to intensify? Everyone now is talking about this XBB variant of the Omicron coronavirus that is spiking all over the Northeast. So I think, you know, nowadays a governor can set out this agenda or that agenda, but there's so many unpredictable things in the world that a lot of it is kind of just, you know, planning for the unforeseeable. Well, let's talk about personnel for a moment. We know she's losing a New York State Health Commissioner, the New York Budget Director, who will be taking a new job in Puerto Rico. Meantime, there's this ongoing question of whether her selection of a new chief judge will be able to get through the state Senate. As we speak, opposition has really been growing to her pick. How does that shake out? Yeah, I know that that judge pick seems doomed at this point. Um, she got a list from the State Judicial Commission who, who gives a list. That's how it's done in New York. They, they vet these various people that could be the, the candidates for the chief judge. And she picked Hector LaSalle, um, a former, uh, prosecutor, former, um, assistant DA on Long Island. If he were approved, he'd be the first Latino chief judge in New York state history. That would, you know, that would be pretty significant. But, uh, progressive groups, Unions say that he's too conservative and they don't like some of his rulings that they say could be interpreted as anti-abortion and anti-union. And we now have Democratic state senators saying that they'll vote against it, um, most prominently the deputy majority leader, Michael Gianaris. And the Hochul uh, would need uh, votes from Republicans in the state Senate, because Democrats have the supermajority if she wants this judge to be confirmed. Um, but the other uh, wrinkle is that Democrats have the power whether to even put the vote on the floor. And if they don't have the majority within their own conference, they may never put the vote on the floor. And um, right now, I think they're trying to force her to back down and choose another judge. And right now, that that is not how she wants to start her first elected term as governor saying, oh, I made a mistake on a judge. Here's another one. So I think that is going to play out for quite a few weeks. Meantime, the cast of characters in Albany will be largely the same. We know uh, New York State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins and the Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie are uh, back 
in the legislature for the new term. Um, how do you see the budget process playing out this year? We know there's a lot of economic uncertainty on the horizon uh, and the end of some federal influx of funds that has buoyed New York over the past couple of years. So what will the budget center on this time? Well, as one legislative uh, source put it to me, less money, more fighting. (laughs) (laughs) Last year, they had all that federal aid and, uh, you know, they were pretty much giving Hochul a break. You know, there was just, you know, a lot of uncertainty going on. But uh, as you mentioned, Andrea Stewart Cousins, Carl Hasty, they're they're no shrinking violets. Um, They are powerful people. They're not just going to do whatever Governor Hochul wants. They've asserted their power in the last few years. Um, under uh, former Governor Cuomo, they started to assert their power. And then when nobody really was in power for the first year, or, you know, had the definitive power, they asserted, you know, their influence. And, um, you know, they they want to be a force. They don't they don't want to, you know, play second fiddle to the governor. So I think she's going to get pushback on them. But right now. The state's finances are still okay, but if spending remains the same that it is in the next couple of years, the state's going to face a fiscal cliff because the spending's unsustainable. A lot of it is fueled by all the federal COVID aid that is running out. So if they don't make a big decision this year, they're going to have to make some big decisions during the four years of Hochul's terms, either cutbacks or maybe right now don't add to spending so that you don't have to cut back in a couple of years. So, and that always, that always ends up being, you know, a very tense time between you know, any governor and any state legislature, no matter what party, no matter who's governor, no matter who are the leaders. Let me finally ask you about two words that have become shorthand for debate in New York politics, bail reform. Is there any sort of appetite among the majority Democrats in the legislature to revisit bail reforms of 2020 uh, or to change anything this cycle? It certainly doesn't seem like it. And as you know, anybody who saw all the ads during the campaign, it was a big issue. And that's why Congressman Lee Zeldin gained quite a bit of ground against uh, Hoke, although he ultimately lost. The legislative leaders, they don't want to do it. They are um, both African-American and it was disproportionately used against African-Americans you know, more than white people. If you are white and you're convicted of a crime, you know, you largely could make bail and get out of jail. African-Americans would be stuck in jail. And, and a lot of times they were innocent. So there were very legitimate reasons to do bail reform. And they don't want to just throw it away to three years later, um, just because there's, you know, issues about increased crime that really have not been proven to be related to bail reform. They're more probably more related to the pandemic, most experts think. So I don't know. And also with Hochul not facing election again for four years, maybe that will kind of, you know, die down a little bit. You mentioned COVID earlier in our conversation. I'm just wondering, uh, as someone who's uh, been in the Capitol for so many years and covering uh, all different administrations and governors and lawmakers, what's life like in the Capitol these days after so many years of restrictions now? It's very empty, Ian. Let me tell you, I miss seeing colleagues. I miss the hustle and bustle of it. I expect in January more people will come back. But the lawmakers have placed more restrictions on the public and reporters. There's still sections of the assembly chamber that we're not allowed in that we used to be able to hang out in and, you know, catch the lawmakers going to and from the chamber, catch the assembly speaker. But they're saying, well, because of COVID, you're not allowed in there. So I think it's, it's a little bit more secretive. It's a little bit more quiet. 
a lot more Zoom going on, a lot more remote. And I think that all depends. Will we get another wave of COVID? If that, if we don't get another wave this winter, then maybe it'll start to be a little more normal and more people will be showing up in person, which it's just very helpful for everything to go better there. Capital correspondent Karen DeWitt setting up the 2023 legislative session for us. Uh, it's a sprint through June. Karen, thanks for being there. Sure thing. I look forward to it. Thank you to Karen DeWitt. Thank you to Ian Pickus. And, of course, the New York State Public Radio Exchange for making this audio available to us. This has been our Albany update. Tonight, we're going to return to All Things Considered coming up in just a moment. Local edition returns tomorrow evening, and it's uh, the first Tuesday of the month. That means it's time for the Kingfisher Project. Join Bill Williams tomorrow on the local edition for his guest, Eve Goldberg, founder of the Big Vision Project that helps young adults in recovery. It's the Kingfisher Project only on the local edition, coming up tomorrow evening at 6.30. Relatively mild temperatures continue this evening and tomorrow, and uh, some moisture is coming into our area. Partly cloudy this evening, increasing clouds with periods of showers on the late end, the overnight low down to 34. Rainy tomorrow, high of 46. Rain is very likely. This is Radio Catskill, your NPR station. I'm Maria Hinojosa, this week on Latino USA, the story of the first registered Mexican-American Holocaust survivor. If you look at my dad in those years, you could not tell he had gone through anything that was extreme in nature because he hid his PTSD so well. That's this week on Latino USA. Thursday afternoon at 2 on Radio Catskill. Hi. This is Clyde, host of Set It Off, Saturday nights, 7 to 9 here on WJFF. And I and all your friends here on WJFF would like to wish all of our listeners a wonderful, glorious new year up ahead. Remember my favorite things and then Peace out. One of the country's oldest independent record stores is closing its doors for good. For more than five decades, record revolution has been a fixture in the music scene around Cleveland. It's seen customer preferences and formats change again and again, from vinyl to cassettes, CDs to streaming, back to vinyl again. Kabir Bhatia from member station WKSU visited record revolution before its official closing date, now set for January 7th. It was 1967. The Beatles' Sgt. Pepper was turning listeners on and turning the music business on its ear. For almost a century, records had been sold mostly through appliance stores, drug stores, and musical instrument shops. But as boomers came of age, independent stores like Cleveland's Record Revolution offered a new experience with clerks who lived and breathed the latest music. For 15 years, one of them was Rob Love, and he became a co-owner in 2004. We were career music enthusiasts you you know what i mean like i can't think of anybody that wasn't also a musician or also involved in music in some other aspect of their life dusty stacks of 45s line a few shelves in the basement during record revolution's big going out of business sale there's also a bargain bin with albums by dan fogelberg and barbara streisand and one wall of new and rare lps awaiting a new home for years, it's been the go-to music stop for Stacy Cohen, who found the store in the 1980s. 
I remember buying Madonna and Cyndi Lauper buttons and tapes and stuff like that. I remember when the True Blue Madonna album came out, coming here to buy that. And we were really excited about that, putting the buttons on our jean jackets. Despite vinyl's comeback over the past decade, sales at Record Revolution have still been slow. One big factor is the music industry's shift to streaming music. Joey Dean and Ellie Montenegro, both in their 20s, do download their favorite music, but they frequently spend date night vinyl hunting. They both like the experience that comes with buying records at a brick and mortar store. It's more personal because you kind of collect them and then you can pull them out and be like, oh, I remember we found this at wherever. Or like when you find a really good one, when you've been like browsing for an hour, it's, it's a really fun experience. Oh, because it's so much better to just flip through the records and go stand by stand and talk to people that are here. Rob Love says that sales have been, quote, tremendous since he announced last month that they're closing. The bump in interest <laughs> and the bump in foot traffic, if, if we could have done consistently a quarter or a third of this kind of business, uh, you know, of course I would keep it going. But, you know, it's not. <laughs> That's not the case. You know, everybody loves you when you're dead. Love says he'll miss his customers and he'll really miss the thrill of introducing people to new music. For NPR News, I'm Kabir Bhatia in Cleveland. One of the artists we've met recently showed us the layers to his work. My biggest sort of buzz off being a songwriter is just being of service to whoever I'm with, you know, and feeling like I left that day going, I really like, feel like we got somewhere, even if it wasn't a song. That is Tobias Gesso Jr., who earned a Grammy nomination in the brand new category Songwriter of the Year. On today's Consider This, he shares more of his process. To listen, you can subscribe or download wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Bill Williams. Join me Tuesday evening for the Kingfisher Project, Information Against Addiction. I have in-depth conversations with people who have faced this issue head-on and the writers, speakers, and thinkers at the forefront of this crucial conversation in America right now. We focus on harm reduction, reducing stigma, and good practical information. That's the Kingfisher Project, Tuesday evening at 6.30, only on Radio Catskill's Local Edition. What's up, Radio Catskill? Greg McVicker here, putting you on the guest list to join us for a laid-back music party that we call Undercurrents. It's a mix of exciting new tunes with some old favorites and lots of other songs that you forgot that you knew. We go across all genres, and don't worry about it. It just all flows together. I'll bring the music, you bring your ears, and we'll do this. Undercurrents. Monday through Thursday at noon. I'm your host, Kuzar Grace KG, right here in the place to be. The Music Emporium, Tuesday, 7 to 9, on 90.5 FM, community-supported radio, Serving the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania, and the Upper Delaware Valley. All those other towns, villages, and hamlets who pick up our broadcast, big shout out to you. 
Vet to Vet of Sullivan County understands how difficult the winter months and the holidays can be for veterans, service members, and their families. Through the PFC Joseph P. Dwyer Peer Support Program, help is available. Call 845-794-4228 and ask to speak with a veteran advocate or connect on Facebook and Instagram at Vet to Vet of Sullivan County. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call the Veterans Crisis Line by dialing 988 and press 1. Paid for by Action Toward Independence. All things considered, from NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Many of us feel tethered to our water bottles because we've been told that being hydrated is key to being healthy. Our Life Kit and shortwave colleagues teamed up to talk about what science says about hydrating. Turns out much of the lore is due for an update. Shortwave hosts Emily Kwong and Aaron Scott take it from here. I'd like to actually start with a story. You know, so I'm a marathon runner. I mean, that's like my people. This is Tamara Hugh Butler. And back in 1999, she was a podiatrist volunteering at the Houston Marathon Medical Tent. I'm like in the corner, like popping blisters, like taping up like ankles. And because it was hot, all these runners were like being carried in on stretchers. And we assumed that everyone was dehydrated. IVs are going in like everywhere because that's what you did. And so in four runners, uh, after the fourth IV, they started to have seizures in the medical tent. They needed to be intubated. They were taken to the hospital and they were all in comas for a week. And the diagnosis came back. They all had hyponatremia. Ooh, that sounds really serious. What is hyponatremia? Yeah, so your body is constantly in this state of fine-tuning and internal balance between water and sodium. And hyponatremia is when that gets out of balance and there is too much water and too little sodium. Back in the 90s, the focus was much more on dehydration, not its opposite. So the next year at the marathon, Tamara decided to look at how much folks were drinking and then measure if they had hyponatremia. Runners were drinking 80 to 100 cups of fluid during the marathon. Yeah. And so for me, I'm like, oh, my God, they're drinking all this this water. It was such a wake up call for Tamara that she actually closed her podiatry practice and went to get a Ph.D. with one of the international experts on hyponatremia in South Africa. And we did a series of studies and we confirmed that runners were drinking way too much fluid during the race and their brains were swelling and their lungs were filling up with fluid and they were in comas with a few of them dying. Deaths like this are rare, Emily, but it is a risk for all kinds of athletes. I mean, Tamara says football season scares a lot of people in her field because young folks are guzzling water, thinking that it'll fix things like cramps and headaches but then not realizing that drinking too much water can actually cause cramps and headaches. Hmm. So tell me, how much water these days do we think (laughs) we should be drinking? Well, you probably heard that old saying of, you know, you should drink eight glasses of water a day, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, uh, not true. Um, No one really knows where that came from. But for a lot of hydration experts, this is the myth that will not die. Because the real answer is, it depends. It depends on your body size, on your activity level, if it's hot and you're sweating a Mm, lot. mm. Snaps. Listen to your body. Okay. Uh, Though I will say, Aaron, I can barely pay attention to the thirst of my plants, let alone myself. (laughs) (laughs) How do I monitor my body's thirst needs? Well, the fancy thing about that, Emily, is our bodies do it for us. Oh, how nice. 
Yeah, Tamara says hydration isn't about just water alone. It's about our body's balance of water to salt. That is what prevents our cells from shriveling up from dehydration or swelling up from hyponatremia, either of which can be deadly. And thirst plays a central part. There are sensors located in your brain. And they constantly are like tasting your blood, like ooh, to see how like if it's just right salt. Uh, so, but if it's like too salty, uh, then it's like oh my god, I need more water. So when that happens, it makes you thirsty. And so when you're thirsty, what happens? You put more water into your system. Then the sensors are gonna go like ew, that's too watery, and it's gonna like signal a hormone that's gonna make you pee out all that extra water. So these sensors are in your brain, and they mainly connect to your kidney. And that whole back and forth between the brain and the kidneys—it happens so fast that your body knows within a minute of drinking whether you drank enough to rebalance that water-salt ratio in your blood. You've got this sensor in your brain that's been encoded in the DNA of vertebrates and invertebrates. 700 million years. It's in worms. It works for worms. It works for us. With only a few caveats,、oh, of course there is. Okay, what's what's in the fine print? <laughs> yeah, so there is some research that suggests that older people may have a reduced thirst sensitivity and、mm. likely should be drinking more. Okay, and then a few studies found that people who chronically don't consume much water, like around a liter or less a day, that they might have a weaker thirst signal too, and might see an increase in positive mood and wakefulness if they drink beyond their thirst. And then other research has demonstrated that folks with certain medical conditions, including kidney disease, kidney stones, and urinary tract infections, they also can benefit from drinking beyond their thirst. Okay, good caveat. <laughs> Let's move on to some other hydration myths. Okay, I've heard that if you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. This one is like yes and no. Kind of、okay. depends on who you are. Tamara says that our body is constantly, you know, sampling our blood, and that our thirst kicks in after we lose about two percent of our fluids, which is totally fine for most people. You get thirsty, you drink water, you're good to go. But if you are, say, an elite athlete or a fighter jet pilot or something that requires intense concentration, there is some research that's found that mild dehydration is enough to keep you from your peak game. When you got to this two percent level. Of water loss, you did see some impact on what we call executive function, higher order judgment and thinking, and also sustained attention—the ability to continue to be vigilant and focus on on a task, even if it's very boring. This is Mindy Millard Stafford. She's the director of the Exercise Physiology Laboratory at Georgia Tech. And she looked into this mild dehydration, which she says is also linked to things like worsened mood and lower alertness. And it didn't really matter if that dehydration was due to exercise, sweat-induced loss, whether people were just not drinking enough, or if they were in a passive heating situation. That was not related to exercise. That is to say, like you know, sitting around in the hot sun.、Mm, that's my my favorite、uh, water loss situation. <laughs> okay, last hydration myth: coffee and tea. I've heard caffeine is a diuretic and dehydrates you. <laughs> yeah, and it turns out that this is kind of my favorite one because it's based on a study from 1928 that looked at. 
three people. <laughs> we can toss that out. It's too small of a sample size. <laughs> yeah, and so they've done newer research, and this myth doesn't hold up at all. But you know what is a diuretic, Emily? What? Alcohol. Uh. I mean, really, hydration, like so many good things in life, comes down to balance. That was shortwave hosts Emily Kwong and Aaron Scott. And this was just an excerpt of the podcast. You can check out Life Kit and Shortwave for more tips. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from Data Haiku, a platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. Support comes from the Narrowsburg Union and Catskills Curated. Presenting products of regional artists, artisans, makers, and craftsmen. Gift wrapping and shipping available on site. NarrowsburgUnion.com Tavern on Main, a neighborhood bar and restaurant on Main Street in Jeffersonville, New York. Featuring local American fare, specialty cocktails, craft beers, and Sunday brunch. Menu and hours online at TavernOnMainNY.com And from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org This week's Beat Latino is all about what we had on repeat for 2022 in Voz de Mujer in Women's Voices. I'm Catalina Maria Johnson, inviting you to tune in to Beat Latino. Coming up tonight at 11, here on Radio Catskill. 